0: Listening to On The Road with Mike and Andy, Australia's number one weekly podcast made for Aussie truckies by Aussie truckies, here to bring an independent voice to truckies right round Australia. On The Road is proudly brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer. Visit the website at nti.com.au. And Queensland Rail, committed to improving safety through engineering, innovation and education. Go to www.qr.com.au G'day and thanks for joining us for episode 107 of On The Road. This week in a jam-packed audio extravaganza, Mike goes one-on-one with Paul Davies from Ostroads to talk about the licensing system and more. We go to the vaults to bring you part one of a great two-episode chat with Aussie music icon, the incredible Frank Ifield. Our new segment takes a slightly different format this week as we're joined by Bob McMillan and Glenn Sturl. There's our regular Something to Talk About segment and a song from the new album just released by Aussie songstress Melanie Dyer to take us out. Everything trucking and more over the next hour, so settle in, get comfy and enjoy. For now...
1: Let's get this show on the road!
2: Yes, get on with it! G'day, I'm Yogi from Outback Chuckers, And when I'm on the road, we're always on the road doing stuff out on the road. But when we're on the road, we're listening (laughs) to the big rigs on the road.
3: (laughs) This is Simon Smith here from the Australian Big Rig Radio Roadshow.com. Truck and Radio is what we do across Australia 24-7. Loads of truck and classics every hour. If you'd like to drop us a line, love to hear from you at some stage. Our email address, bigrigradio at yahoo.com.au. Catch it down the road and take it steady out there. The Australian BigRig Radio Roadshow.com.
4: got Paul Davies with me today. He's the General Manager at Programs at Ostroads, and we're going to talk today about the Consultation Regulatory Impact Statement which is open up for comment until the 28th of October. Now I saw this thing as a news story and my path crossed with a lady named Ekaterina at Ostroads. We communicated backwards and forwards and I think it's a great thing to talk about. Now, as a bit of background, it should know that every driver in Australia, professional driver has complained about the licensing system and the way people get their license. We've all harped on about how people need to be trained better. This consultation regulatory impact statement is something that aims towards better training and more professional drivers down the track. So it's great pleasure. I welcome Paul to the show. What's going on? Paul, how are you, mate? Well, Mike, thanks for having me mate, it's entirely my pleasure. Now, I had a bit of a look through the web page there when we were talking about what the consultation regulatory impact statement, we're not going to be able to say that all the time. Let's just call it Chris, huh? Yeah, we can say series, that works well. Can we do that? We can do that. I'm going to get tongue-tied if I've got to keep saying it. Mate, there are three main things as far as I can see, which you're looking to do. You've got some proposed changes in the strengthening of skills and developments. You've got some proposed changes with providing options for progress from one license class to another, and you've got some proposed changes to preventing the small number of people who are getting their licenses inappropriately from doing that. So let's start at the start, mate. Where did all this come from? I believe it got started in 2011, is that correct?
2: That's right. The National Heavy Vehicle Driver Competency Framework started in 2011, but we haven't had full adoption around the country for a whole range of different reasons. So this is something that's been in train for a long time, and uh, Ostros is now undertaking a comprehensive review and uh, looking to see if we can make this actually a better licensing framework, both for drivers and for other road users
4: as well. Seems to be a good place to start. We're notoriously dragging the chain on this sort of stuff. What's been the holdups, do you think, so far?
2: There's been a lot of time spent on research to ensure that what we propose actually is grounded in a bit of evidence and a truth so that the licensing changes that we propose are actually going to deliver on those benefits of safer and more job-ready drivers.
4: Obviously, the various state governments who are in control of their licensing systems haven't really helped, have they? Well, they're all
2: members of Austroats, and so they're working together with us in developing and reviewing the heavy vehicle driver competency framework. So it's a long project to make sure we get it right, but we do have all of the states and territories working with us.
4: Why are we going about proposing these changes, though? I mean, what drives the change now or the attempt at the change? Well, we're really dependent as a country
2: on our heavy vehicles, Australia more than many countries, certainly in providing consumer services, but also for our competitive industries. And those vehicles need competent and safe heavy vehicle drivers, and effective licensing is the key to maintaining our supply of competent and safe drivers. So this review has considered research, industry feedback, coronial reports and parliamentary inquiries and identified opportunities to improve both the competencies and assessment in our licensing frameworks and our overall
4: licensing policy. It's a fine objective, but I mean, how do we go about achieving that? Obviously, the drivers that we're getting, the pool of drivers we're getting to advance is obviously getting smaller and smaller. There is a case to be argued that if we make it harder for people to get their licenses, that's going to slow down the rate of recruitment of drivers Do you fundamentally agree with that?
2: It's absolutely a risk and something we've been very mindful of in developing the National Heavy Vehicle Driver Competency Framework or the revision to it Mm. because licensing is obviously one factor, a really important factor, but it is just one factor when we talk about broader economic and employment conditions. In Australia, it's just one of those factors, but we wanted to make sure that the licensing regime didn't impose unnecessary issues. And of course, there's a bit of tension when you're saying you want to make the licensing framework deliver better drivers. And so alongside this, we've also put forward some improved expedited progression options for drivers so that once you start your journey in the heavy vehicle licensing framework, you can actually go through a lot faster under some of the
4: proposals. Yeah, I was just having a look at the website there before we started, and there was a lovely graphic there which outlined the three different paths. Obviously, one was tenure, one was proof of skills and training.
2: Driving experience, basically.
4: Yeah, driving experience as opposed to age.
2: That's right. At the moment, you can get your, for example, get your heavy combination license and never sit in a semi-trailer. Yes, And, you know, one year later, you're going for a multi-combination license. Mm. What we're really trying to encourage is for people to get behind the wheel and show that they've spent time behind the wheel and that makes them eligible for the next steps.
4: Mate, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we had the situation here in New South Wales where if you rocked up with a heavy rigid license and you had it for 12 months, you could just get a HC license and then only several days later be getting a, an MC license. Yep. And unfortunately, that situation is one of the ones that's led to problems because we've had people that might have the belief that they can handle the situation, but when it comes to uh, the rubber hitting the road, so to speak, they're not quite up to it sometimes.
2: No, no, that's right. And there's just a lack of experience. And that's one of the things that the research that we've done has shown that a lack of experience is a real you know, risk factor for people taking that next step to the, the higher grade of heavy vehicle
4: driver license. That is. Mate, the review's open for comment until the 28th of October. That's really not that far away in terms of time. Is that a hard deadline, is it? Or are you going to be looking at things that may come in just after that?
2: Uh, look, we set the deadline because we really want to keep it moving and make the changes. We have to close that stage out so that we can consider all the feedback and keep going. Yeah. Obviously, we do it the best we can after the 28th of October to consider feedback. But if you get it in by then, we can guarantee it'll be properly considered. Yep. We've tried to make it really easy for people as well because we recognize most people don't have a lot of time to sit down and write lengthy submissions and things like that. Mm. So we've put surveys on the website and in about 10 minutes, you can go through, have a look at the main aspects of what we're investigating and put your views forward. So we're really keen to hear from drivers, operators, driver trainers, people affected by what we're proposing.
4: As I said earlier on, drivers universally seem as though they think that we're not getting a good result with the licensing system as it currently stands. We really should be doing more to correct that. And you say here on the webpage that heavy vehicle driver licensing is applied inconsistently across the jurisdictions. Are you hoping to get some sort of consistency when this is done? Absolutely. That's a real key
2: goal here, to have a consistent standard of heavy vehicle driver at each of the license classes around Australia. It's very important, particularly given that many heavy vehicle drivers cross borders on a very regular basis. Yeah. We want to make sure that we don't have people shopping around, shall we say, for the easiest place to get a license. We want to have a good standard around the country. Yeah. I was just going to say that we've certainly heard from industry that operators are not confident in the licensing system to produce job-ready drivers. And I've spoken to numerous people who have said that when they get a new driver, they take them out, make sure they can actually drive. And I know it's only anecdotal, but everyone has a story of someone they've had to tell to step out of the truck and they drive it back to the depot for them.
4: I can attest to that as a former employer. I certainly had that situation and that wasn't yesterday. So Mm. there's been a number of articles written recently, one only last week, I think, which appeared in Big Rigs, which was basically saying that just because you've got the license doesn't mean you're competent. There are a number of other issues apart from licensing, though, such as requiring task-specific training. I don't think that's going to be inside the purview of what you're doing, is it, really?
2: No, there'll always be a requirement for any employer to make sure that their employee is safe and competent to do the task that they've been asked to do. And that's always going to be the case. And, you know, we recognize the licensing system can't be absolutely all things. We can't have everybody, for example, practicing driving a crane and then a bus and then a semi-trailer and that sort of thing. It's got to be reasonably general, but also to give you those basic core skills so that you are ready, that on-the-job training for specific tasks.
4: Mate, a lot of people don't know who Austroads are or where they sit in the general scheme of things. Would you like to clarify a little bit of that? Tell us what your role is as an organization and, and where you fit in? Sure.
2: So Ostroads is a collective of Australian and New Zealand transport agencies and we represent all levels of government. So uh, local government with, through ALGA and the state and territory transport agencies as well as the Australian and New Zealand governments from their perspective and our role is to drive harmonisation and consistency in best practice in roads and road management and related areas.
4: And so you have areas of interest apart from licensing. You're talking about registration and about vehicle design as well or like PBS vehicles and that sort of thing?
2: We're not involved with PBS, but in the registration and licensing space, Austroads operates the NEVDA system, which is the National Exchange of Vehicle and Driver Information System, and that's essentially the states and territories sharing information amongst each other on licensing. So if you move states and need to change your license from one state to the other, for example, your data will pass through the NEDDIS system. So that's one of the services we provide.
4: And that verifies that the license that the guy's presenting for renewal in Western Australia or to change over to Western Australia that he currently got in Queensland, for example, that it is a genuine license and he does in fact hold one.
2: That's a genuine license. That's the goal of that. And we work to the goal of one person, one license effectively. So we don't want people with licenses in several states.
4: Yeah, well, it's a far cry from where we, where we used to be on that sort of thing, isn't it? There are a few of us old school drivers are around that can remember circumstances where that was certainly the case. You had more than one licence and oh dear, those were the days, the good old days, so they tell me. We're just going to slip off to a quick break and hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back in a moment.
0: There's nothing more devastating for a truck operator than to be involved in a serious road incident. Specialist products, experienced people, accredited repair and recovery networks and industry advocacy is what we do. It's our specialty and we've been doing it for more than 45 years. For more information visit the website at nti.com.au or go to the NTI Facebook page.
4: I'm back with Paul Davies, the General Manager of Programs at Austroads. There are a number of fact sheets that are available on the Austroads webpage. That's austroads.com.au for anyone that wants to have a bit of a look later. I'm going to include all this in the show notes. There are seven, as far as I'm aware, about specific points that we're trying to look at. Obviously, developing a well-trained driver and capable workforce, obviously we mentioned before, is one, improving safety with a new license eligibility criteria we've already mentioned. Mate, I wanted to talk to you about Fact Sheet 6, and that's recognise the fleet complexity with the new classes of MC licences. Adam Gibson from NTI and I have had long, long, long conversations about this, and you've obviously consulted with the insurers about what they think. The risk levels change markedly when you go from a single trailer to multi-combination vehicles, and as they get bigger and heavier, the risk is larger. We're talking about splitting it up into three groups. What do you got to say about that, mate?
2: That's one thing that's really come through in the research. And as we talked about progressing through the licensing system, at the moment in Australia, you can go from a heavy rigid to a multi-combination license. So you can go from one day driving a completely non-articulated vehicle to, to one that's got you know potentially four points of articulation. And so it's a huge jump in complexity. And one of the recommendations that we're putting through in the series is that the MC class would actually be split into three different classes. So The way we've carved that up is that the MC1, the the sort of entry class, would cover combinations with up to three trailers but with only B couplings, so B doubles and B triples.
4: So no dollies in that?
2: No dollies in the MC1 class, that's right. Right, yep. So uh, before you're driving any combinations with dollies, you'd be looking at the MC2 class, which will allow you to go to the A doubles or the double or triple road trains that have dollies in there, up to three trailers again. Yep. And then the MC3 class would cover all the bigger things, so quads and the occasional quin, which are starting to operate around Australia now.
4: Yeah. As we say, those things, as they get bigger, there's a hell of a lot of truck in the mirror. You really don't want someone that's been driving for 12 months behind the wheel of one of those, do you?
2: No, absolutely not. And and I know industry does the right thing in this space. There wouldn't be too many people who'd put an inexperienced driver in front of a quad. So that generally speaking, you'd hope that's the case.
4: Well, mate, that's my experience, what I saw in Port Hedland when I went over there to do it. All the companies have driver trainers yeah, and you get signed off vehicle operator competent before you're allowed to fly solo. But those first few weeks when you're flying solo, you can have your heart in your mouth occasionally, I guarantee you, <laughs> even with the best of intent. I don't doubt it. A lot of trailers in the mirror, mate, I can tell you. Yeah. We did find in the research that
2: there do tend to be a lot more accidents of those larger vehicles as well, particularly with drivers who haven't had a lot of experience at the smaller combination level.
4: Yeah. Once they get out of shape, it can get untidy really quickly. Yeah. So the other fact sheet, which is, I found interesting, was boosting capability, as is fact sheet number four, boosting capability with post-license supervision. One of the things we've had trouble with in the licensing system in general, whether it's light vehicles or heavy vehicles, you get your license, and unless you voluntarily go and do some advanced driver training or you reach an age where the authorities feel as though you need to be tested, we never go back. We never go and have any more training.
2: No, that's right. And bad habits can develop reasonably quickly. And and that's what we're talking about with this post-licence supervision. So it's really about getting someone in the cabin with a newly licensed driver. We're only talking about a few hours of time, not doing it for days and days, Mm. but just to to act as a bit of a mentor and say, uh, you're doing this part really well, or when you're doing this, consider that, that sort of thing, just to essentially talk them through what's good practice. So Obviously, you want those supervising drivers to be pretty experienced themselves. you want them to have quite a few years. We've proposed five years experience at that class in the RIS and also a small credential, less than a day's worth of training just to help them you know, with that mentoring type role. So do that effectively.
4: So I think it's one of the biggest problems we've got. I mean, you have guys like myself and any other number of drivers my age that could probably offer some helpful advice to a, a new driver or even someone that's been driving for a little while. But we don't have an academic qualification or a train-the-trainer sort of a thing that allows us to take on those recognized training roles. Is that something that you're talking about addressing with a short period of training to help that happen?
2: That's exactly it, yeah. So rather than getting all the way through to doing a driver-trainer course and being a driver-trainer or assessor, it's just getting that bit of skill in being a mentor and offering that sort of advice in an effective way. So it's a small amount of training and the vast majority of the skill, of course, is the experience that comes with at that class of vehicle.
4: Yeah, that's right. Obviously, as I've said, I've spoken to Adam Gibson a number of times about many things, mate, we're truck geeks, we just geek out on all this sort of stuff, I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah. We've talked about things like the data that's available from the trailers and from the, the trucks themselves and simulators and all sorts of things. Do you see an increasing role for that sort of information down the track to improve driver ability? Oh look, I think there's a lot of potential there.
2: I've no doubt that our vehicles are getting smarter. There's no doubt about that. And capacity to use that data for the driver improvement training certainly there. We're not looking at that in this risk, but one of the things we are looking at that's quite related is using essentially hazard perception training and testing yeah. for heavy vehicle drivers and people who have recently completed their vehicle license might have seen that or, or for motorcycling, that sort of thing. But we don't have anything specific for heavy vehicles at this point. Mm. So that's something we're moving ahead with as well because there's real benefits in you know, things you just can't practice. You can't practice having someone jump out in front of you while you're driving along.
4: That's right, yeah. You
2: need to do it in a simulated fashion.
4: Yeah, well, that's the problem with mechanical failures, things like blown steer tyres and that. Exactly. It's just not possible to do that in practice without being really dangerous, of course. Of course. Having had it happen to me twice in real life, I can get some experience that will make you sit up straight in the seat. And it would have been nice to know maybe a simulator experience beforehand. I think that simulators are a great way to go. I would also say to you, and one of my recommendations would possibly be professional drivers be required to undergo a day's training at least once a year to maintain their license. Airline pilots do it. Why shouldn't we? Look, I've no doubt it'd be beneficial to people to do that and for any driver,
2: to be honest. Mm. It's not something we've put in the c but that's part of what we want when we put these CRISs out is to say, what do you think actually will improve the licensing system? We want to do it in a way that doesn't impose lots of costs. Mm. Obviously, it's got to offer benefits and net benefits. But yeah, certainly we're open to that sort of thinking as well, particularly if you've got some evidence behind it. Anyone who's listening has got some evidence behind that sort of thing. The table, well, that would
4: be very keen to hear it. Like I could hear the company say, oh, God, lose a drive for a day once a year. What are you thinking? Shut up. Uh, And it's why we test these in a series. It's exactly right.
2: Yeah. Because, you know, obviously you could go to the nth degree and at some point it becomes, you know, really marginal gains at a great cost. So we want to get it at the right balance.
4: Yeah. I think you're doing a great job with what I've read so far. Mate, what's next? Where do we go from here? Well, from here, uh, this is, as, as we've said, a consultation regulation impact statement. That means that what we've
2: got in there is not settled policy. It's what we're considering and it's what we're testing. And what you see in the fact sheets and what you might see in the videos on our website is the entirety of what we put forward. The RIS actually looks at sort of a light touch and a middle touch and a full suite set of options. Mm. So once we get all our feedback from the RIS, we will assess that talk to people if we need to talk to people. And the next stage in the process is to develop a set of recommendations that are assessed in more detail in a decision regulation impact statement, which will go to ministers. And that'll be essentially a singular option Mm. of what all the consultation has suggested is the best on
4: balance. And what sort of a timeframe do you think we're looking at, mate?
2: These things can vary a bit, and that's in part because it depends on which of the options on the table we ultimately take forward. Some of them are much more simple and straightforward than others, so some of them might take a little longer to assess, but we're very confident it'll be next year that we're taking it to ministers, and it's just whether it's early or later in the year, really.
4: Yeah, right. I'd like to see, obviously, an improvement in what we do. I think everyone that uh, is thinking about, in a sensible way, what's going on on the highway can't divorce our current licensing system from some of the outcomes we see on the road. One of the things that you're talking about there was removing the ability for people who have had serious offenses or serious issues from getting or upgrading their license. What does that look like in practice, do you think? We've asked in the
2: wrist for people to give us a bit more of a steer on that, but we have put forward what we think it looks like. Mm. And the, the university research that's been undertaken shows that people who really undertake sort of high-risk behaviours on the road, and by that I mean things like drink and drug driving, yep. speeding well over the speed limit, sort of 25 kilometres an hour over the speed limit hoon driving, that sort of thing, Yep, they actually do pose a risk when they get in a heavy vehicle, which probably doesn't surprise anybody, mm. but you know, that's been demonstrated in a robust way. And so what we'd be talking about is saying that if you've had those sorts of offences in the past two years or so, you wouldn't be eligible to either go for your heavy vehicle licence if you haven't got one or upgrade it if you do have one.
4: Yeah. I don't think you'd find too many people that object to that. We look across the ocean and we see what goes on in the States with their commercial driver license system. Obviously, we have a national heavy vehicle license here in Australia. Do you see a path down the track one day where we would have a similar to the United States system here with a commercial driver's license system?
2: Oh, look, we're not particularly looking at that. I know the research did consider overseas driver licensing models, but it's not something we've put forward in this series. Yep. So what we're, we're looking at is essentially enhancing the Australian model mm. and taking that forward so that it's got stronger competencies and experiential pathways to go through. That's really the key thing. We drive some of the biggest and most complex vehicles in the world. And in many respects, we have to lead the way with our licensing because of that.
4: Yeah, I agree, money. <laughs> Had to ask the question because I just know there'd be some of my listeners who'd be sitting there going, mate, why don't we do it like the Americans do? And to a point, I think that there's a certain amount of merit in it, but you're right. We do drive some of the biggest and most complicated vehicles in the world. And as Adam's told me, ad infinitum, one of the safest heavy vehicle industries in the world, and although we still do suffer some incidents, accidents, and unfortunately, people lose their life on a per capita basis, we're not too bad. I think we have to be fairly proud of that.
2: We do have a very safe system in Australia by comparison around the world, obviously, as you say, we can't tolerate any level of death on the road or trauma on the road because that's someone who's had their life cut short too soon. Mm. So we have goals of reaching zero. We don't want to have anyone dying on the roads. Mm. But yeah, we shouldn't stop and forget the fact that we have actually made some good progress.
4: I'd love to talk more, mate, but we're sort of well over time. I do thank you for taking the time out to chat with me about this, Paul, and thanks very much, Katarina, for putting us together. I'd like you to come back down the track and, and keep us updated if you wouldn't mind. I'd be happy to do that, Mike. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'd appreciate it. Take care and drive safe. You too.
3: Kermie here from Trucking with Kermie. I listen to On the Road podcast every week
5: on the Australian Big Rigs Road Show. And when that's done, you might like to pop over to Trucking with Kumi on Facebook for my take on trucking and the people who make the industry what it is. Catch you over there, and in the meantime, take care of you.
4: You over there, Andy? Yeah, got gotcha you go. Mate, we're coming up that level crossing we were talking about before. Looks like we're gonna be stopping. Roger that. Look at the size of that thing. They tell me they take about two k's to stop. That's like 20 times the length of the MCG. We'd want to be playing chicken with that. Yeah, copy that. They can't exactly swerve either, can they?
5: They're stuck to the tracks,
4: mate. <laughs> it's not that hard to wait till it's safe to cross and make sure the road's clear on the other side. Yeah, not like that bloke last week who forgot about the length of his trailer. Yeah, I heard about that one. It's not really funny though when you think about it. Poor old train driver. Probably been having nightmares ever since. Yeah, I reckon. We're all in the same boat, really, mate. Everyone just wants to get home safe at the end of the day. Yeah, not wrong on that one. There goes the last carriage. Looks like we're safe to head off now. Thanks, Mike. Long way to go. After you, old mate.
5: This is a message
0: from Queensland Rail reminding us that it's important to stay alert and obey any signs and signals when approaching level crossings to help keep you and everyone else safe. For more information, go to (laughs) www.qr.com.au. Folks, we're going to take a brief break from our series of introducing you to up-and-coming Aussie music artists to step back in time and meet one of the greatest icons of the Australian music industry, the legendary Frank Ifield. I recorded this chat with Frank a few years ago as a feature slot for my Boomer Lounge podcast. Now, it's a little-known fact that in addition to being an amazing performer in his own right, he performed alongside and virtually launched the career of the Beatles, played with the Shadows and so much more. Even now in his late 80s, Frank is as sharp as a tack, entertaining and funny as. Over the next two weeks, we'll be playing excerpts from this interview, so without further ado, here he is, the wonderful Mr. Frank Ifield.
1: Yesterday just passed my way again
0: our guest this week was born in coventry england to australian parents on november the 30th 1937. influenced by his grandfather who toured in the Coven Co. days as a song and dance man he traveled with his family back to australia where at 13 he somehow managed to con his way into an appearance on radio 2gb's amateur hour and before too long he was given a recording contract with emi in 1956 he became the first country singer to appear on the second day of television broadcasting in australia with his own TV show called Campfire Favorites, which was the first live show on television. Whilst in England he recorded in the famous Abbey Road Studios, he recorded and released a plethora of songs and whilst they were reasonably successful, he was still looking for his first big hit. That came in 1962 when he recorded the iconic I Remember You, reaching number one where it stayed for seven weeks and lingering in the charts for a total of 28 weeks, selling millions of copies. He appeared at the Royal Variety performance with the Queen Mother asking if he would yodel for her. He obliged, belting out, She Taught Me How To Yodel, much to Her Royal Highness's delight. Once again starred in another Royal performance, this time before Her Majesty the Queen at the Palladium Theatre. He went to Nashville, appeared on the Grand Ole Opry. Back home he was inducted into the hands of fame in Tamworth set up his own recording label, and was noted in the Guinness Book of Records for notching up a staggering 158 weeks in the UK pop charts. He has received major music awards just about everywhere, including being elevated to the country music role of renown, inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame, inducted into the Hall of Fame at the Moe Awards, was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia for service to the arts as an entertainer. I could go on, but I might leave him to tell you the rest. It's an absolute Yesterday honor and privilege to be joined on the couch today by Australian music royalty. Ladies and gentlemen, the living legend that is Mr. Frank Ifield.
1: Yesterday just passed my way again. <clears throat>
0: Frank, good afternoon.
6: Thank you very much, Andy. It's good to be with you.
0: Your first big hit worldwide was in 1962 with a song that everybody knows and can usually sing at least the first line to. That song was I Remember You. Now, for the sake of nostalgia, and perhaps by way of introduction to those who might have been living on another planet or under a rock for the last 56 years, <laughs> allow me to play just a little bit of that right now.
7: Okay.
1: You're the one who made my dreams come true. A few kisses ago, I remember you. You're the one who said I love you too. Yes, I do. Didn't you know? I. Remember to a distant bell and stars that fell like the rain out of the blue and my life is through and the angels ask me to recall the thrill of them all then I will tell them
0: You'd recorded and released quite a number of songs prior to I Remember You and they all had varying levels of success, but then you released this great song and the world couldn't get enough of it. Even today it's still considered a classic. What do you think is the magic in I Remember You that made it such a massive hit for so long?
6: I really think, uh, Andy, that it was due to the personal thing of the I-U relationship of the song. Yes. The lyric was done by Johnny Mercer, who is a very clever lyricist. It came out of a film called The Fleet Sin. I don't know if you ever saw that. Anyway, it was the flop song of the film. But I think I owe a lot to, when you think about it, to Nori Paramour's arrangement of that, which wasn't cluttered. It was originally a jazz song, but he did it sort of country. Mm. And to me, that was a very important thing, too. He didn't let the arrangement get in the way of the song. Right. And also, of course, (laughs) the yodel. (laughs) Do you know, Andy, my manager said to me, don't yodel whatever you do because you're going to be typecast with that for the rest of your life. And because of that, I wouldn't dare put any yodel in anything. (laughs) But I remember you almost didn't happen because it was right at the very end of my contract. So I thought, well, what have I got to lose? I'll stick a yodel in. Yeah, yeah. And that's how they, that little bit of I remember you. <laughs> People used to see me and recognize me across the road and be, hey, I remember you. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously that catchy bit had something to do with the whole thing.
0: I think it's the yodel that makes it so instantly recognizable too.
6: Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very strange really because when I first went over there, I had a hit called Lucky Devil. That was the first one I had and uh, when I uh, I chose that song, Norrie said to me, it's a bit country for England, we don't like country much over here and I thought, mm. well that shot me down in flames because yeah. that's what I grew up with. And so really, I'd gone through that first two years right to the very end yeah. before I turned around and did this song with I Remember You, mm. which was a jazz song as I say, yeah. to a sort of country beat and he loved it. <laughs> And that was, that was how it all came about.
0: Frank, a lot of people aren't familiar with the fact that in 1986 you suffered a very severe bout of pneumonia that caused irreparable damage to your vocal cords, and so very sadly you haven't really been able to sing since then. Your voice has always been such a beautiful instrument. For someone who loves performing as much as you do, with the gift that you have, it must have been very hard for you to deal with that life-changing realisation.
6: Oh, it, it certainly was, Andy. It wasn't so much the, the pneumonia. I came back to Australia after that pneumonia was cleared up. And it wasn't until I got back to Australia that I found my lungs collapsed. Oh, goodness. It was actually because of a tropical bug that I'd picked up in Singapore the year before. So that was the problem because I had to do a lot of exploration down through the vocal cords mm-hmm. to do operations and what have you. Yeah. But, I mean, let's face it, the experience really sort of challenged me to push forward and discover new things to do. Yeah. Once I got my speaking voice back, I took my hand to being what you'd call an anchor man in a two-year contract that we had with TV and a show called It's Country Today. And it went right across the country, actually, except it wasn't shown in Sydney. But that sort of got me back because all I had to do was talk on that and, and introduce people. Right. So there had been lots of things that I turned my hands to, which I didn't even know that I could do. Mm. But it turned out great. And it's all working. And in fact, last year I was over in England again. Mm. And we did um, six weeks of uh, shows over there. And it it went down tremendously well. So I'm back to it again.
0: Yeah. Well, you're not exactly retired, are you?
6: No, no. no. (laughs) (laughs) Retired? What's that?
0: (laughs) England's always been very good for your career. And you still hold the record, I believe, for being the first artist to reach number one three times in succession on the UK charts, as well as being awarded three gold records in the same year. It's huge. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? But you've also performed for both Her Royal Highness the Queen Mother and also Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth. Mm. What a blast that must have been for an English-born Aussie at the time. How were the nerves performing in front of the royals?
6: (laughs) Well... You can imagine, can't you?
0: I can. Yes.
6: <laughs> I mean, here am I. I'm, I'm treading the world famous stage of the legendary London Palladium. <laughs> I had a dream before I went to England, and I gave myself three years to crack it. Now, cracking it meant I wanted to play the Palladium. Yeah. And you know, it happened. We just a few weeks to spare, but almost to the three years, and and there I was up on the London Palladium stage, mm. and it wasn't just playing the Palladium. It was televised and because it also had the Royal Command performance. Yes. So, how do you think I felt? <laughs> the whole world was watching me. Yeah, yeah. But it was a wonderful experience, you know. I went on from there and did loads and loads of shows from the, the playlist. Yeah. I always loved doing it.
5: Yeah.
0: I know that when you perform for the Queen Mother, she actually asked you to sing a particular song, a yodeling song. So, this is the song Frank sang for the Queen Mother. And it's simply some of the best yodeling you'll ever hear. We'll play it right now.
1: I went across to Switzerland where all the yodelers be to try to learn to yodel with my yodel-o-dee I climbed a big high mountain on a clear and sunny day and met a yodeling gallop in a little Swiss chalet. She taught me to yodel, yodel to yodel. Taught me to yodel, yodel, yodel
0: Suffice to say, Frank, we simply don't have the time to list out every song you've ever recorded and performed. However, you've had 29 albums, 141 singles, over 300 compilation albums. That's an amazing body of work. (laughs) It is. I read somewhere that a copy of the album The Beatles and Frank Ifield on stage recently sold for more than $22,000 at auction. There's an interesting story attached to that particular record, Frank. Would you care to share it with us? Yeah.
6: My single was released in the USA on a VJ label in 1962, and the album that came out with it received the same success it did in the UK. Right. And that came quite as unexpected to me, because I was told that English records rarely made the American charts, and this was true to some degree. But meanwhile, back in England, the Sick Blues had made the top, and I was doing a show at Liverpool Empire when a guy called Brian Epstein came up to see me. Oh, I remember About him. a new group he had a high hopes for. Yeah. Well, now, because I've given the, the thing away already, I think, when I mentioned Brian Epstein. And he told me the boys had worked mainly out of Liverpool. They'd never done anything else outside of Liverpool. Mm, mm. But he was aiming to get them on my one-night stand tour. And I listened to the new recording at the time. I remember I agreed to try them out of my first show, which was in Peterborough. Okay. The group, of course, was the Beatles. Of course, yeah. A bit obvious, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> and uh, their appearance on my show was really simply too loud to the audience. Okay. And they were walking out the audience. We oh, 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 what's happening here? Yeah. And the theatre manager came around to see me, and he said, we've had loads of complaints about the volume. Oh. Now, when I look back on it, I think, on reflection... I must be the only person who had to tell the Beatles to turn down. (laughs) Obviously, you know, they became the largest thing later on because this was their first show out of Liverpool. Right.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Frank Ifield. Join us again next week when Frank talks about the Beatles performing one of his songs live, the joint album called Frank Ifield and the Beatles live on stage, his time as a stock car racer and hot air balloon fanatic. His performance with Hank Marvin and the Shadows, and we play some more of his wonderful music.
1: Line number one, you're supposed to have it all together. And when they ask how you doing just smile and tell them, never better. We just wanted to
0: stop by for a moment and say, G'day, how are you No, I mean, how are you, really? Physical and mental health is a significant issue for the Australian road transport and logistics industries. Risk factors like long hours, workplace isolation, pressure to meet deadline deliveries and the need for continual alertness all contribute to making us vulnerable to physical and mental health issues. As much as it might feel that way sometimes, you are not alone. There are some incredible people and organisations in our industry whose sole focus is on helping you to stay healthy in body, mind and spirit. All these numbers and addresses are listed on our website at ontheroadpodcast.com.au. Take care of yourselves. We really just want to see everyone get home safe and well.
1: Oh, am I the only one who says I'm fine? Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. Yeah, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not. So let the truth be told.
0: Something to talk about is brought to you by Only Trucks and Credit One. Buying your next truck has never been so easy. Go to onlytrucks.com.au. Let's to talk
7: about.
4: On my recent trip to Alice Springs, I did go to the gift shop and I had a bit of a look and I was amazed at the number of books that were available on road transport in Australia. Just incredible. Anyway, I did decrease the size of my bank balance a little bit and I bought home a few books. In fact, we had an extra checked bag because of the weight of all the books. It's lucky though, because we'd already pay for a checked bag, so it was great. I picked up this book called Australia's Road Transport Heritage, compiled by Liz Martin. Liz, as you know, was probably one of the driving forces behind the museum in the first place, and she's done a really great job with this book. It's a rare insight into the road transport industry in Australia. There's several hundred pages with different makes of trucks, buses, and the beasts of burden that we saw throughout Australia. It's a really great piece of work. And I thought, well, why not just open it at random and we'll get a page out of Liz's book and I'll relay a piece of Australia's trucking heritage. So open up to page 82 in the book here. I always thought we had the right to use radios and that in the truck, but it doesn't seem as that was always the case. The a piece here about winning the right to use CB radios. So in the mid-1970s, police would hunt down and charge operators found with citizen band or CB radios. Their use in trucks was illegal, despite the obvious safety advantages of communication over the mountains and single-lane bridges of the EM highway. The government feared the use of CBs would alert truck drivers to enforcement activity, adversely uh, impacting fine revenue. Gee, I wonder if that's ever happened. Anyway, in 1976, the trucking industry decided to fight back The Illawarra CB Radio Association was formed specifically to manage the fight and to legalise the citizen band radio. After one arrest too many, the call for action came. Protests were staged at the Wollongong Courthouse and at Mount Oosley. On another occasion, New South Wales Parliament was blockaded for five days. This forced the inquiry that resulted in road transport operators winning the right to use CB radios. Gee, they knew how to get together and have a bit of a say to Parliament about issues in those days. Wouldn't it be great if we could stick together in that way today? Anyway, that's it. That's the book. If you get the opportunity to have a look at it, I'd thoroughly recommend it. It's something that really does demonstrate the history and what a great industry we happen to work in. Take care out there. Keep it safe. And we'll see you on the road. Copy there, Andy. Yeah, gotcha go. You gotta love that big breaking at the roadhouse.
0: Oh, you're not wrong, it's a great feat. Hey, was that Davos truck that came in spluttering and coughing like an old tractor?
4: Yeah mate, I think it's about time you upgraded the old girl.
5: Yeah roger that, though it's a bit of a nightmare shopping for a new rig.
4: Doesn't have to be mate, found this place called Only Trucks. An online one-stop shop for buying and selling trucks. All the best makes and models, it's associated with Credit One, Organise the finance for you. You can deal with the seller's direct through the website, cut out the middleman, save time and money.
0: Sounds like the way to go.
4: Where do I find them? Too easy, mate. Go to onlytrucks.com.au and it's all laid out there for you.
5: You should send Davo a text and tell him to go to Only Trucks and get a new rig. Might just
4: buy you a beer or three. Davo? He wouldn't shout if he was bit by a shark, mate.
0: (laughs) Upgrading your truck has never been so easy. Go to onlytrucks.com.au This
3: is Adam Gibson from NTI. And you're listening to On The Road with Mike and Andy. For all
0: the latest industry news, go to www.bigrigs.com.au. G'day, Mike. Not sure what it's like down your way, but if this weather keeps up, it could rain in Brizzy.
4: (laughs) Mate, it's a bit (laughs) damp down here.
0: Damp's
5: not the word for it, and it's dark. It's like 6.30 at night here at, what is it, 10.30 in
4: the morning. Yeah, well, it's climate change, mate, don't they tell me? <laughs> Let's not even start. I was out near Kobar yesterday, yeah, and it was raining so hard out there. I swear to God, mate, I actually had to slow down. I was getting a little bit worried. You couldn't see the road. There's water over the road in places. It's just not what you expect from spring anyway.
5: Yeah. Speaking of climate change and weather and stuff, mm. I was reminded of the Australian a couple of years ago who
0: went travelling through Russia and they, they visited the Pulkovo Observatory near St Petersburg for a tour of the facility. Right. And the guide who led the tour was one of Russia's leading meteorologists, a bloke named Rudolf Chechnikov, if I've got his name pronounced properly, Chechnikov.
4: I hope you have,
0: uh, When asked by one of the tourists for a weather forecast for the rest of their holiday time in Russia, Chechnikov simply said, ran, a lot of rain. <laughs> yeah. The Aussie bloke called out, yeah, mate, right, there's not a cloud in the sky outside, hasn't rained for months, and his wife tapped
5: him on the shoulder and said, shh. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer.
4: (laughs) I didn't even see that coming. I didn't even see that coming.
3: (laughs) Raindrops are falling on my head.
5: Moving right along, mate, we've had a couple of issues with our website. What's happening? We have
4: had some issues with our website. Hmm. Without warning to me, they said that they sent me an email, but I'm damned if I saw it, they shotgunned our website the other day, so it's gone. Okay. So what's happening now is I'm having a talk to a web consultant, actually. We're going to get professional now. We're going to do it properly. Right. And we're going to regenerate our website with a new host. The website address will stay the same because we have the domain name and everything and all of our emails and everything will stay the same. Hmm. We're going to put it all back together as best we can and we're going to set up the shop in the web page so that we can sell a few of the caps and pens and things like that. Yeah. And we're going to have merch,
5: mate. Merch. I love it when they call bit it of merch. merch. That makes it so professional.
4: Bit of merch. Yeah. More important to get the thing ready so we can promote the audio book. The book. Yep. Looking forward to it, mate. It's going to be a little bit different. We're going to run it properly this time because I've decided to get some professional help rather than try and muddle my way through it myself. It's best that I stick to doing what I do, that's talk and drive trucks, and we'll get someone else to run the webpage. Well, we'll be back bigger and
5: better than ever, as they say. We will, that's the plan. Now, to quote a certain Channel
0: 10 news program, this week it's news with a difference here on the road. So, with a couple of hot feature
5: stories you've been working on, first up, you had a chat with Bob McMillan, who's been acting as a roving reporter
4: for us. Bob the roving reporter. And it's a role that suits him too, because he used to do a lot of writing for Truck and Life and a few of the other publications. If anyone remembers, he was fairly opinionated and did stir the ATA up quite a bit. I really enjoyed reading what he used to write. Mm. So Bob went to the Kenworth Classic and put a lot of stuff on Facebook, and I said, "Well, why don't I record a bit with you, Bob, and you can tell the listeners about the Kenworth Classic?" So we did. Bob, the Roving reporter. Let's have a listen. Unfortunately, I couldn't get to go to the Clarendon Classic because I was too busy doing podcast things, but we did send our raving reporter, I've got to call him that now, our raving reporter, Bob McMillan. (laughs) Bob, you went to the Clarendon Classic. What happened out there? You didn't get wet feet, did you?
8: No, no. It rained on the uh, Thursday night, but by the time I got there at 10 o'clock on Friday morning, there was a few puddles and a couple of soft bits on the edges of the seal where they needed to back trucks on and that, but it was all in very good shape really, Mike. I got to see a lot of trucks arriving and really got to see what the whole show was all about because I'd not been before.
4: Did you catch up with Gunter and see the Keogh restoration, did you? Oh yeah, well that was the big
8: climax on Friday afternoon. Um, Bruce didn't get there till about oh, four-ish I think or maybe even later with it but when I walked in on Friday morning the second person I bumped into was Max Keogh so we had our own little personal reunion <laughs> before anything got going and you know, amazed from the very outset at the quality, it standard and interest of some of the gear that was coming in. It was a combination of things. There's was all this beautifully presented modern gear. Very interesting younger and even people approaching my age involved in it all. And a fair few old relics in that coming in too. Some of them fully restored and beautifully sewed, just like Bruce got on with Max's truck. Some of them in original condition, like one truck there was Alan Kemp from Bundaberg. I remember when he bought it new, we used to run up and down the coast and bring produce down out of the north and everything. And we often used to catch up at Mooney Roadhouse and places like that. And that truck's still in original condition. There's plenty of photos of it on Facebook and it's got a KTA-19 in it. Dear old SAR, really, it was a really, really heavy spec, a bit like Ronnie Fuse that's in the museum at Alice Springs. That was a particular interest to me because Alan and I loaded and unloaded in quite a few places at the same time over the years and knew each other well. I believe he's still around and going along, so we'll say hello to him. (laughs) If you're listening, Alan, we're thinking of you, mate. And all credit to Glenn Dawson for getting it going again and getting it along there too because that was one of the exciting moments. Bruce stole the show with Max's truck and the fact that Max had come all the way from Logan, Utah to be there. Mm. He became an overnight media star. I'd never seen more photo shoots of two or three of the same people. (laughs) 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 Bruce and Max and Max's family were in high demand for all the cameras. Mm. But the organisation seemed to be totally seamless. Like I'm sure there was plenty of stress and pressure going on in the background, but it's all volunteers and the people that are organising it it was David Chapman's idea in the very first place and he kept hounding Bruce till they put it together. So Chapman had a big heap of his collection there and some really nice gear and there was a lot of people working very hard in the background and it was just so well organised, it was incredible.
4: It gets the heart racing when you see some of these old jiggers and yeah. listen to the noise and get a bit of the whiff of the diesel fumes.
8: For someone that's been around for a while, and you know, and I'm one of many, Mm. not not just about me, but man, you can walk along there. And of course, my old T900 that I had for quite a few years, Mm. it's there and been tidied up a bit. It copped a pretty hard life after I sold it. But young fellow, John, someone I've forgotten his surname, he's got it now, and all credit to him, he's got it looking pretty good. (laughs) Almost wanted to buy it back, but I wouldn't be allowed to drive it anyway. So stirs up a few memories that maybe they're just lying in the background and you see particular trucks and run into particular friends you haven't seen for a while and you see someone that kicked on and got a few more trucks than they had last time I was talking to them and all that sort of thing. And it's all great to see people succeeding Yeah, see positive stuff.
4: Great to see these things coming back too. We've had Casino now, we've had the Ketworth Classic, we've got the Ballinger thing out at Bathurst. It's going to be happening in November. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It seems as though there's a truck show every other weekend now, do not there?
8: Danielle's done a wonderful job of keeping that business going. And I know she's had help for some people who are doing it very quietly in the background and all power to them too. It's great to see because yeah. it was Dane's baby until it was unfortunately taken from us. Mm. And um, now it's all been kept going in his memory and as a tribute to what he started. Uh, you know, I just wouldn't be able to find the right words to endorse that or support it other than to say, well done.
4: That's about all you can say, yeah.
8: Keep up the good work. It's been bothering me a little bit. I don't know if I can say this on this interview, but it's been bothering me a little bit. All these people complaining about the industry and wanting to get out yeah. when they've probably only been in it a fraction of the time that some of us have. And it was good to be out there with a big heap of positivity and not hearing sob stories or bitterness, but just positive and That's right. People wanting to press on. And look, mate, like some of the gear is just incredible. I, I've been fortunate to own and drive some beautiful trucks in my career. But some of this stuff that was out there, the really modern stuff, you know, like the Lawrence Fleet and mm. Malcolm Blanch's T900 and, and all the legend SARs and legend T900s and 950s, man, there was some beautiful gear.
4: As you say, it gets the heart racing.
8: Well, it did, yeah. I was on my feet all day. I was absolutely wrecked when I got back <laughs> to my sister's class. But I had two days out there and mm. Friday was just like a bit of a build-up. When you look back on it, but even Friday itself, when there was only about a third of the the fleet there, it was exciting enough. And then I went over the other side where all the other than Kenworth brands were parked. And I wasn't talking to him, but Michael Hennessy had his grey ghost over there. And that was creating a lot of interest in its own little area. And then there was a few other brands of trucks parked around there. Well, I thought it'd take me about an hour to go and check them out. And I was over in that part of the ring four hours.
4: Yeah, yeah.
8: Yeah. So I had a wow of a time, mate. And I hope everyone else did because it's a credit to uh, Bruce and his team. Mm. And it's a credit to Chapo that he ever thought of it in the first place. Yeah. And the venue is well chosen. I've had a real top year, mate, if I can say so, because you throw Alice and the improvements that are happening out there and having you out there with us, and the climax was Max's truck coming, but it was only part of a wonderful show. Mm. Throw it all together, and I don't know what else I've got in store for the rest of the year. I don't know if I can make it to Bathurst, but honestly, mate, if someone uh, wants to really get themselves a top year, come to Alice Springs and come to the Kenworth Classic. You won't
4: better it. It's a great pair. So that's the end of it now, mate. You're still on your way home from Alice Springs, aren't you? Heading home now?
8: Yeah, I'm I'm going to probably take off about Wednesday morning, mate.
4: All right. No worries. Well, look, mate, you take care of yourself. Drive safely. Yeah, I always try. <laughs> try and stay out of trouble.
8: Oh, is that compulsory?
4: No, it's not compulsory. It's just a... <laughs> <laughs> No, the sort of
8: trouble I'd like to get into, I'm probably a bit old for now, mate.
4: <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Bob McMillan, thanks for coming on the show and tell us about the Kenworth Classic. Mate, you take care of yourself, matey. I'll, uh, yeah. I'll see you when I'm looking at you.
8: Good on you, Mike.
5: Now, mate, you also caught up with Senator Glenn Stirl for some updates
4: mate we did i haven't spoken to glenn for a while and i wanted to catch up with him about the 45 odd million that's being put up by the federal government to in some way deal with the ad blue crisis that we're like staring at it coming the end of the year Hmm. and then catch up about a few other things and now he's roped me into going for a drive with him in western australia so that'll be interesting let's have a listen to that indeed I've managed to get my old mate, Glenn Stirl, on the phone. But I haven't seen him since Toowoomba. You've been busy, mate. You've been taking triples up the west to western Australia. You've been flying backwards around. Looks like you've strong-armed elbow into sorting out the urea issue. <laughs> What's going on?
3: Well, I'll tell you what, mate. We're not letting grass grow under our feet, mate. It has been busy. Thanks, mate. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, I think the highlight, mate, not only being back to work and crossing the borders and parliaments again, but doing a triple up the Fitzroy Crossing, which was, shall I say, cathartic. Mm-hmm. And that's my charity run, mate. You know I love playing around that area. But no, all good, mate. And I'll tell you what, December's coming, and I'll be out there doing a few more runs for charity,
4: mate. Well, oh, well, shout me a plane ticket over, mate. I'll two up with you up there for one.
3: Hey, I'll take you up on that. <laughs> I'd love to do it. I really would. Jeez, I don't think the cab would be big enough for your and my head,
4: mate. Oh, no, we're, we could hang out the window. <laughs> I think it will be a bit of fun, mate. I think I've got no doubt it'll be a bit of fun. Hey, we've been sort of looking at what's going on. There's been a few roundtable discussions going on and just a lot of generally interesting things happening in the transport sphere lately. I want to get to this $50 million for the urea project shortly. Do you think that you're making any progress since you took the wheel, you guys?
3: Oh, absolutely, mate. Look, there was two round tables. I know the Minister for Infrastructure and Transport had her round table, the road rail and maritime. But I've got to tell you, mate, the main game in town was the one that was done a couple of days later with Tony Burke. Yep. Now, this was monumental, mate, and that's the word I've used before. NRFA, TWU, the state associations, all of them are at the table bar one, and we know the one that's not at the table. Nat Roads were at the table, and and mate, a lot of your listeners would go, hang on, what the hell's going on? These were people that were opposed to anything that we wanted to do previously to try and bring some sensibility to some standards, enforceable standards, who are now all on the same page. Now, Mike, I've got to say this, mate, not only Monumental, they're all in the room, the NRFR are in the room too. The owner drivers, now the TWU represents a lot of owner drivers locally, mainly, but the NRFA were there representing their constituents, as was Nat Roads, as was the States. And we're talking about some serious stuff, mate, because the situation now where we're all working for nothing, and the companies are getting screwed down, can't keep going. Mm. Even the top of the supply chain, Mike, were there, Coles and Woolies. Uber were there. Now, seriously, when they're all in the room saying, we can't continue down this path, The recommendations from my report mate, which you know very well, was garnished from talking to operators and talking to drivers, and we've now got the minister saying, well, we're going to do something. We're going
4: to fix this, mate. This is huge. My understanding is that Tony Burke's looking at bringing some legislation forward pretty soon, isn't he? Yes, mate, yes. Now, the actual date I can't
3: tell you, but the industry for the first time has been unified. Not all, mate. There's a couple who are outside the tent and they'll stay at the tent. That's their choice. Mm. But we can't continue down this path and the minister has said very clearly, he identifies that. He was rapt to see the industry coming together. Such a huge push from the industry from the same sides, from employers, from owner drivers, from employee associations and saying mate we can't continue to keep getting squeezed so yes it's coming and it's coming very quickly mate and we've got to make sure that we're all
4: at the table to get it right we don't want to blow it no well we don't want to blow it this time We, we, we certainly want to make sure that we've dotted the i's and crossed the t's this time and we don't want to end up with the destructive situation we had last time with the rsrt right yeah correct mate moving on the 50 million or 49.5 million that Mr Albanese has said will be used to create a national stockpile for technical grade urea and deaf. What's the story behind that, mate? Where did that come from? I mean, obviously this has been an issue that's been brewing in the background for quite some time, particularly with InSAtech saying that they're going to be pulling the pin come December. Read the press release. Do you think that this is something that we can pull off? Absolutely. Absolutely, because I know, Mike,
3: this was the greatest fright that we got, mm. what was it now, mm, early this year, late No, late last year, December, January, somewhere around there, Yep. when all of a sudden, everyone was asleep at the wheel when Intertech Pivot had actually, when I say everyone was asleep at the wheel, the previous government had completely lost their sight of what this means to us. Intertech Pivot had made no secret that they were going to shut down, I think it's October this year. I know there was about $30 million thrown at it to continue producing a rear. It was the greatest conversation that wasn't a conversation where it shouldn't have been. Mm. And what I mean by that is, we all knew about it. Yeah. I was actually driving road trains up there because I caught up with you in Port Heaven, mate, when I filled up and I think you and I had the conversation, $3.50 a litre for AdBlue when uh, the trip before, a couple of weeks before, I think I'd paid about a $1.20 or $1.30 or
4: something stupid. That's right. Remember
3: it well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And anyway, kind of long story short, I had had these conversations with Chris Bowen. I'd had the conversations with Jim Chalmers as well when he was the shadow minister and with Catherine King when she was shadow minister for transport. So. This is the greatest thing not being spoken about. Yeah, and there was no confidence anywhere instilled that I could see saying is someone taking us seriously on this. So yes, mate, I'm glad to say when and Chris Byrne sent me the media release the other night before it came out. Yeah, and I was quite chuffed. I think it was oh, Mike. I think it was Thursday night or Wednesday night, whatever it was. And I was actually quite chuffed, but quite chuffed to see that they'd taken it seriously, but to the point where they're now going to put out tenders for grants, I believe, you know, so we can start producing this stuff here on on our shores. So good on them, because I wasn't still with any confidence previously.
4: Well, I mean, really, it's the government's role to take responsibility and, and take charge of things that yep. other people can't provide or have difficulty providing, I mean... Diesel exhaust fluid, as it says in the press release, is crucial to the transport sector. It's part of the Australian design rules now that trucks have these systems in them. And obviously, it's an environmental responsibility as well to do what we can. That's right. So the trucking sector's got to do the right thing. And unfortunately, not having a sovereign supply, I think, would have been a serious oversight. And I can only thank you and the other members of parliament for seeing the need.
3: Thanks, Mike. Mike. I think the most important thing here too, and look, like I've got some criticism, but I'll stand firm on this. The transport industry has not had a unified voice, and you've heard me say this many times. I agree completely. Year after year, and when they do think they have a voice, they're talking to the top end of town where there's a suit and a tie, mm. and with the greatest respect, the owner driver's voice has not been heard there. The small operator's voices weren't heard there. Right. I am absolutely confident, mate, that we're now being heard. Could we be heard more? Absolutely. Do we need louder voices? My oath we do. Will we continue to go down this path together and to make our voices heard? I certainly hope so. So I think we're in a far better space than where we were. A lot of work to be done. But if we just include and put our arms around everyone and we have a government that will at least listen to us, is a first step on a gradient that I'm happy to take. But we want them to do
4: something too, of course. As I said before the election... I believe that Labour had the best platform from transport point of view anyway. I I wonder about some of the other things that are happening, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, that was a good start. <laughs> you've tried to drag me across the aisle, mate. You've done a pretty good job. I'm halfway there. but <laughs> I'll get you. Oh, I don't know. Although when we start delivering, mate, I'll tell you what I'm going to remind you. Mate, I'm happy. I mean, as soon as you start delivering, and look, to be fair, you're already delivering. You're making all the right noises, and I appreciate that. I'm certainly a lot more happy now than I was 12 months ago in the transport industry.
3: Good. So that's a challenge for us, mate, and I'll be happy when we deliver, too. All
4: right. Well, look, thanks for your time, Glenn. I do appreciate it. I look forward to seeing you in person again soon. I was going to try and get down to Canberra and say good day to you, but you scuttled away before I could get a chance. And obviously, we've both got our work schedules to, to consider. But mate, I think you're doing a great job. And congratulations to you and Carol and Catherine on the work that you're doing. And I'm looking forward to see what happens. Mike, right, you're a
3: diamond. Thanks very much, mate. But I'm going to think about this. I'm going to seriously think now. I'm going to get you, how can I get you to do a two up with me? <laughs> we might need a K200. I don't think we're going to fit in the 610, the pair of us with our egos, mate. But I look forward to it, Mike. Mate. mate, you're a champion. Thanks so much and,
4: and all the best, mate. I've got an answer. Maybe we can take two trucks, mate.
3: Take two trucks. Do I have to go
4: and get a second truck? Go and get a second one, mate. Let's take two.
3: Uh, and can I count on you unloading the furniture at the other when we get to Cuttenara and Fitzroy?
4: As long as there's a beer in it when we're done, mate. Oh, I tell you what, that's
3: even easier. Now you're talking. <laughs> all right. Good on you. Well, oh, this is going to be a doozy. Right. Sounds great, Mike, all right? Take care, mate. All right, all the best. Bye-bye, mate.
4: All
0: right, mate. Well, that's our main pieces. Now, I'm sure, keeping with tradition, you're going to have a couple of little things up your sleeve. What do you got?
4: Oh, well, there's been a few interesting things. Look, I'd encourage anyone to go to bigrigs.com.au and check out the news there at the moment. There's also a new issue, a hard copy out, couple of things I suppose that I'd like to talk about just just quickly. Mm. There was a bus accident which happened involving a truck down in Victoria the other day. Horrific. Horrific accident. Mm. Some 30 odd kids there injured and um, I believe one girl has suffered a life-changing injury there as well. Mm. There's been a lot of speculation and a lot of stuff flying around on social media about this accident. Who did what, when, where, how and why. hmm and I appreciate that there are a lot of guys out there that run across that road and they might have an idea of what happened. I've certainly driven across there more than once. But I think any comment about who's responsible and why is probably a little bit premature. I think we should wait and see what happened. Yep. The accident investigation will tell the story and I'm sure that something of this magnitude will be front and centre for a little while. No doubt. And I do hope the company involved have got all their ducks in a row because it's going to get very untidy for them if they haven't. Mm, for sure. So that's that one. The other one is that Viva Energy have acquired Coles Express and they're going to be the biggest single supplier of convenience and fuel in Australia. So that's something interesting to look at. The other thing, and more importantly, this really should be the leading story, Lights on the Hill is back next weekend, the 1st of October, and that's up at Gatton. I would encourage anyone that's in the area to get along there. There'll be a service on the Sunday. Go to bigrigs.com.au. Check it all out. We're going to talk about that a little bit more next Friday. Wonderful. Looking forward to it. Thought for the week, mate. Hit
5: me. An apology without changed behaviour is just manipulation.
0: Yes. Remind you of anyone you know?
4: (laughs) An apology without changed behaviour is just manipulation. Yeah. There are several people I think of could fit the bill.
5: Yeah, I wasn't thinking of any one particular person, just a generalised group of people that hang about in the nation's capital. Oh, mate,
4: yeah, yeah, Hmm. yeah. That was where I was going with it too. Yeah. I've been a little bit hard on the incumbent government at the moment, pointing out a few of the obvious things, but yeah, let's leave it there, mate. Let's not say
5: anything. No, probably a good idea. All right, buddy. Well, I shall leave you to enjoy your day off and uh, hopefully the rain doesn't affect you too badly. Well, the rain's affected me quite badly, mate. I'm I'm stuck inside. All the yard work's not getting done. You're worried your palm's going to drop out if your hair gets (laughs) wet, mate.
4: (laughs) Fabio, that's that model's name, right? Fabio,
5: don't hate me just because I'm beautiful. That's right, Fabio. Only took two weeks to remember that. Well
4: done. Two weeks. Is that all? (laughs) Double demerit points all weekend, guys. Don't forget drive safe
5: oh yeah on your best behaviour
0: alright mate well you play it safe and we'll
5: talk to you soon see ya see ya buddy
0: On The Road News is brought to you by Big Rings Australia's national road transport newspaper Aussie country pop powerhouse Melanie Dyer has just released her new album called Between You and Me this week to take us out here's track 4 from the album it's Melanie Dyer with Run Out of Road Well, that's the show for another week. Thanks for coming along for the ride. On the Road is proudly brought to you by NTI, Australia's leading transport and logistics insurer. Visit the website at nti.com.au. And Queensland Rail, committed to improving safety through engineering, innovation and education. For more information, go to www.qr.com.au. Be sure to join us again next week when Mike says...
4: To be perfectly frank, mate, I've got no idea how to do it.
0: Our guest says...
4: Well, it's a huge one.
0: And Andy says... Not yet. Until then, play nice with each other and most of all, stay safe out there. Bye for now. Bye-bye. The team here at On The Road believe in the right to free speech and whilst we might not always be in agreement with the views of our guests and contributors, we support their right to hold and express those opinions.